Persian Girl podcast. Um, it's so weird, Natalie, that you're not next to me right now. I know. It's so weird that I can't see your face. Like, I'm so yeah. used to seeing, like, I feel like throughout every episode, we constantly, like, do, like, a side note where we, like, talk to the listeners. We're like, oh, my God, if only you could see Millie's face right now. Or, oh, my God, if only you could see Natalie's face. But now I can't even see your face. And I feel like your face always shows the most about how you're feeling because sometimes you could be so monotone. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. So today we have Sali Sahabi, who is a board-certified behavior analyst. Hi, guys. (laughs) Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So before we get into the topics for the listeners and also for us because we are just learning about uh, behavioral and anal- uh, analysis. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that and how you got into that field? Sure. So uh, applied behavior analysis is pretty much the science of applied behavior. Um, and it's empirically validated and evidence-based. Uh, it's an approach that we use to teach behavioral principles and laws uh, to increase behaviors or decrease behaviors. And we have a wide range of populations that we work with, uh, people with de- developmental disabilities, businesses, uh, behavioral disorders, challenges, speech, the whole shebang, pretty much. Um And it's a relatively new field. It's based on pretty much a little over 60 years of research. And I love it. It's it's an amazing field because there's not a lot of guessing. Um, It is part of psychology, but it is Mm evidence-based and data-based. So, you know, it's like it's it's science, Um, whereas a lot of psychology can sway towards theories and and you know schools of thought this is more uh experimental and applied so it's a wonderful field and i got into it um about nine years ago i started as a therapist working with different uh disabilities and i noticed that you know people were requesting me a lot for different cases and my supervisors at the time, they pushed me and they're like, you need to go to grad school for this and become a behavior analyst. And I was like, okay, I was thinking about getting into speech pathology. But after doing some research, I decided to go in this field. And I love it. I, I learned so much about myself and my family. And, you know, it's just a really rewarding field. And yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think when, so before we recorded, uh, me and Natalie had a conversation with Sally about, like, we, we basically were asking all the wrong questions. We kept asking questions that were, vi- like, a bit vague um, and that would be more asked, um, like, you would ask a therapist rather than um, a behavior analyst. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's how I kind of started to understand the value of it. So like, you know how you're saying it's case by case and on an individual basis. Um, Right. Right. It's totally individual based. That's a good point. Um, A lot of psychology 
is statistical based. So there's these outliers and it's never, um, you know, like 100%. And with applied behavior analysis, often it's not 100% either. Uh, but it becomes more targeted because it, you analyze, you know, the specific person's learning history and you analyze that data and you're able to project future trends and probabilities of how they're going to behave in certain similar conditions. So it's a little bit more precise. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, well, I guess like a question I have is because you, like you are treating things on a case by case basis, but you, in this, like in these uh, situations or with these patients, do you see patterns, which then you like, Oh, you say like, Oh, this is, they see, they have this pattern because they had this in their childhood. And actually there's another patient who developed like the same kind of pattern. Um, so wouldn't that kind of be a way of generalizing or I don't, yeah, that's a really good word you use, generalizing. That's actually a word uh, we use often in behavior analysis. So, um, yeah, to some degree, we see that, you know, learning histories happen. So, like, uh, if the client one day is walking down the street and a dog starts barking at them and tries to attack them, now they have a phobia of dogs. So something in their childhood could have triggered that phobia and they will engage in behaviors to avoid walking near a dog or being around a dog and it's because of that so definitely yeah it'll generalize so that wherever they go they're constantly anxious about running into a dog for instance yeah Yeah. what would you say generally like i mean yeah we can't generalize um (laughs) but it's so hard. I feel like everything I'm going to say is wrong because I feel like I'm constantly generalizing and just boxing a whole group of people into like one category. But I guess I kind of want to ask what happens to a person to make them want to see a behavioral like analyst? Like I I don't know how to right. put the question, but like like I never thought to go to let's say. Yeah. So there's like a whole system in place and I think it's unfortunate. I think like a lot of people can use a therapy from a behavior analyst. Um, Private sectors pay for behavior analysts to consult them and how to organize their companies and corporations and um, people like in sports hire behavior analysts to increase performance and all that stuff. Um, so it really depends. But like for the general like person, um, I think they could definitely benefit from a behavior analyst, but we are not uh, certified to give individual talk therapy. We are like venturing towards um, something new that is in the field of applied behavior analysis called acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, And that's really useful for like anxiety and depression and things like that. Um, But generally the system in place right now, it's basically insurance companies and, you know, government agencies give us the clientele and and they're the ones that fund us um, for the majority of behavior analysts. And with that, the only way that they're going to fund you is if you have like some kind of a diagnosis or a disability, and then they're going to, you know, cover that. 
So that's why you don't see a lot of like behavior analysts like you do with like uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and therapists and stuff like that. Um, so, so this yeah. is more like you're called into like a larger companies if they notice one of their employees is like exhibiting certain behaviors then they bring in uh like your company that you work for and then there's some sort of counseling right so like um i don't know if you guys heard of like industrial and organizational psychologists they kind of branch from us um, and we like design interventions that the company can do to the environment that modify people's behaviors to increase production and performance um things like that or like you know uh different contingencies that's like a major word in our field contingencies um that influence people's behaviors yeah so it 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 you know we we're a relatively new field i see us going you know and generalizing everywhere um but there's certain obstacles to get through to get there but that's one of the things that attracted me to talk to you guys is I wanted to, you know, kind of broadcast uh, in our community, the Persian community for, you know, the general person. And, and they might learn like some, you know, principles of behavior that can kind of ease anxieties about themselves or family members or significant others and help them understand better what's going on without taking things so personally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, I, it's really exciting. I don't know, it feels like we're on the vanguard of something. I mean, you are, we're not, we're not, but like, <laughs> no, you guys are. <laughs> you're vanguard. Uh, <laughs> Millie, you're starting to like give us credit. It's like, <laughs> well, I know, yeah, I'm like, yeah, we're also behaviorists. Um, but so I want to actually, we, I mean, we have the, like, we do have our questions, but I want to bring this up. I don't think I had uh, discussed this with you, but we, in our first call, we were, I don't know, like, the subject came up accidentally, but this, like, the, how it's something you talk about a lot with uh, patients um, or that you see in your field is, like, the kind of types we develop romantically and how they are tied uh, to, you know, childhood experiences or something like that and I thought it was really interesting and, and to me it actually seemed uh like it made sense that that, w that wasn't shocking to me but I I think mm -hmm. maybe it could I don't know if you want to talk about that. yeah so um I wouldn't like so to me I don't compartmentalize it as like childhood experience um I think it's our experiences are constantly fluctuating and modifying our behaviors as we speak. So what I could be attracted in, in my partner necessarily isn't the same things that I was attracted to, you know, a year ago or, you know, five years ago, depending on the experiences that have modified or influenced my, um, what I'm going after. So, you know, childhood could definitely be more salient because like in those ages, especially up to age seven, you're like a sponge, you know. Um, <laughs> this is like Persian and Baba, I'm recording. <laughs> that was such a like 
<laughs> I I feel like maybe I should edit out that out, but I kind of want to keep it. It's like, yeah, totally. Um, sorry, you were saying. Yeah. So you know, like like we're constantly. It's really fascinating because we're constantly evolving. Um, but yeah, childhood experiences could be more salient and more influential in certain patterns of what we're after and behaviors and reinforcers and all that. Um, but you know, that, that could always change, you know, you could, you could be attracted to a certain type or thing because of a childhood experience. And then you attain that and you experience it and it turns out to be punishing. And now you want something that's nothing like that, you know? So it it constantly fluctuates. Um, so the reinforcement history is what we like to call it, which is learning history. Uh, it, it totally, you know, I don't want to say predicts. I mean, it does, but you would have to have like really controlled settings to understand the variables that predict behavior. But it definitely uh, has the majority to do with uh, what's happening and what you're attracted to. So. What you kind of do for a person is you help show them why they're attracted to something. Like, you help them figure out what happened. Like, you make the connection of what happened in their past and how it's affecting them now. To some extent, um, we go through, like, a series of processes where, for instance, I interview the client or the parents and I get the information I need. And then what I'm constantly thinking are what are the particular behaviors that this person is having issues with? Um, And it could be a particular behavior is that they yell. They're a yeller. They get triggered easily and they yell or something like that. Um, And then I look at, you know, what's going on in their environment. What are the antecedents? What happens right before they yell? Um, how they were conditioned to react in that way, what consequence occurred after yelling in the past that increased their probability of yelling now. And you have to look at the functions of behavior. I mean, we can like get really particular about it. Um, it's, it's a pretty big field, but the gist of it is pretty much like each behavior has contingencies and these contingencies are pretty much antecedents, the response, and the consequence, if we want to break it down as the simplest form. Um, and, you know, the antecedent is what happens right before the behavior, the response is what the behavior looks like, what, what it is, if you're going to describe it and observe it, and then the consequence is what happens right after. And looking at this, you would kind of compartmentalize it into a series of functions. Is this person doing this? for some kind of a sensory feedback, meaning something's happening inside their head with chemicals. Is this person doing it for attention? Is this person doing it for escape? Is this person doing it to get access to something like a tangible? And all behaviors are compartmentalized into these functions. So usually looking at the antecedent, what happens right before the behavior gives you a big clue about why that person is doing that. So this is where the reinforcement history comes into play. If, you know, 
a child is constantly deprived of attention growing up because their parents are constantly busy working or there's some kind of situation happening where the parents can't give the child attention as much, um, kind of neglecting the kid, then more often than not, what you see is a lot of attention-seeking behaviors, attention being the function, right? So they, the child engages in the behaviors to get the attention that they've been deprived of. Mm-hmm. So that's why sometimes you see like when they say like, oh, that girl has daddy issues or something, right? Yeah. That kind of explains that. So I know this sounds fucked up, but, <laughs> Here we go. but could depriving, no, I don't even think I'm going where you guys think I'm going. Okay. But could depriving your child <laughs> of attention make mm-hmm. them a more outgoing person? So, like, if I want my kid to come out outgoing, maybe I ignore them and I don't give them too much love. I don't, I don't then think when you, thinking is outgoing. No, maybe a little bit. I don't know. I feel I'm like sure a lot of things could happen. Were, I feel like a lot of children that were overly coddled can mm-hmm. come out overly sensitive and shy. Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's not there's not like, it's not like a one-way path. You know, there's so many other experiences and variables happening in that particular person's repertoire that shapes how that person is going to respond, especially the variables at play most recently in similar conditions. So are you out there? What did you say? Especially the what? um, Especially like the variables at play and more recent um situations yeah we're basically like always uh getting new trauma (laughs) like it never right and you're also getting new reinforcers you're getting new information you're getting new you know a whole bunch of new stuff that's constantly shaping your behavior but yeah i mean it's not like one path it just increases the probability for a particular pattern of responding um but it's not set. It's not like this is what's going to happen to you. It's just probability because also you, you can't always predict like the environment and the conditions, you know, and the context. Do you guys, I have a question, do you guys mm-hmm. um, in your studies, do different things apply to different genders? Because I was just trying to think about it when you mentioned the whole like daddy issues thing, like a girl who has daddy issues will seek out attention from more men I guess but I feel like when you say a guy has mommy issues like Mm -hmm. he didn't get enough attention from his mom it gives him um like they tend to have uh what's it called codependent no not codependent I I feel like guys who have mommy issues have um what's the word when they're when they're bad at commitment issues um I mean I don't know you know it's it's possible I mean let's you want to break that down I'm just trying to figure out if like you guys if if like in your studies different Mm -hmm. things apply differently to men and women like you won't apply the same sure yeah I mean um to some extent sure but the behavioral principles generally apply to all animals and humans Okay. So, um, in a sense, yes. And in a sense, no, (laughs) um, like the, I can condition a rat, a dog, whatever to respond a certain way when it presses a lever, 
I mean, when, when I have food to give it, it's going to press a lever at a certain rate. Okay. Um, through, you know, experimentation and conditioning the same way I would to, you know, a human in different aspects and ways. So the behavioral principles are generalized across species, animals and humans. But if you want to get like super contextual and like particular, I mean, yeah, like females and males to some extent, they do respond differently because they have different, um, I want to say MOs, motivating operations to some extent. So um, like sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes certain males are more motivated through sex, right? Biologically, this is how they were designed, mm-hmm. right? For evolution. Um, so that might influence their behaviors in particular ways that differ from females, so scientifically, you also take into play like the selection of behaviors or, yeah, the selection of behaviors that can ensure the survival of that species. So selectionism in science also plays into behavior, right, into the evolution of behavior. The, the behaviors that are more functional will survive and the behaviors that aren't working anymore will become extinguished. Yeah, so, I think I understand. Oh, sorry. No, no worries. I'm trying to answer the question. I mean... It, it, from an evolutionary standpoint, I think so. Yeah, it would be different um, because there's different motivating operations between the sexes. I mean, it's it's interesting because on one hand, like, I mean, what, what I'm seeing is the gist of it is that it's it's stripping things down and in, into a really simple way. So it's like what you, exactly what you said, like what was the catalyst? What was like how? Do you the antecedent, like, yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually not as complicated um, but at the same time, it's more nuanced in the sense that you can't just, just because this person uh, had an absentee mother, that doesn't necessarily predispose them to certain behaviors. Um, right. But do you feel like there are certain issues or people that are just too complex for behavioral, um, for behavior analyst analysis to work on them? Or I, I don't know if you've encountered that. Well, my... Uh... My professor would say no, um, and that there is no, I mean, here's the thing, like for my clients, myself, I like working with children and younger people because there is less of a learning history to modify. The longer the learning history gets, the more complex it gets, the more you have to deal with, the more you have to uncondition, okay? Okay. So, like, the older the person gets, the harder it becomes to quit certain habits. It becomes harder to extinguish certain behaviors. And there's, you know, there's some truth to that saying that says you can't teach an old dog new tricks Mm -hmm. to some degree. But it's not entirely true. You can. Um, It's just harder. So the older, the longer the reinforcement history is, the more complex it is, the harder it is. But it could be done. Something that me and Natalie have talked about on the podcast before, but like never really, we just complain about it, but we don't like understand why, but um, it's how like there are certain 
marriages where the husband uh, kind of lose attraction to their wife after their mm-hmm. wife gives birth and they're no longer able to see them as sexual creatures after they've had a child. And yeah. I, I don't know, like trying, just like we're both trying to yeah. understand that condition. Like, what did you, what did they learn to, to get to that point? And it's very, it's very like common in the Persian community. Yeah. So, you know, like, <laughs> It, there's not a simple answer for that. It's not like, oh, because, you know, see, like a lot of like Persian, you know, um, psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever famous ones may have a clear answer for that. But if I'm to see it from a behavioral lens, I would say that there's many different things at play. First, you have to identify the behavior. So what's the behavior? Is it the rate of sex? Is it the rate of attraction, however you define attraction? Um, So if we're going to say uh, sex, the frequency of sex, for instance, has significantly declined after childbirth, there could be a number of uh, reasons for that, right? So uh, sex generally for both sexes, female and male, will significantly decline if one or both parties are stressed out, right? Your sex, your libido drops when you're stressed out. Um, Or, you know, it could be, there could be an evolutionary uh, reason for it. It could be scientific that, you know, selectionism is at play. Maybe uh, something's happening biologically where the male no longer has the resources to provide for another child. So their body biologically is kicking in, preventing them from wanting to have sex to accidentally have another kid, for instance, right? Um, Or it could be, you know, again, they're stressed out, or it could be that they witness something traumatizing during childbirth and they notice like, oh, my favorite part on my partner is just like, vandalized right now you know and it's like traumatizing for them and they they, it just overshadows i don't want my husband in the room when i give birth i don't don't want him anywhere if he is in the room he has to be by my head i don't want him (laughs) down there in that area seeing anything that's going on yeah that's a safe bet honestly i've never thought about that yeah those are good things i already know i'm planning a c-section i do not want anything the size of a watermelon coming out of my vagina personally i'm having a plan that's i know that for sure yeah the size of watermelons (laughs) oh my god i mean okay fine maybe most babies are like half of a watermelon like cantaloupe I don't know. I think it's something to be examined that, I mean, I also want a C-section, but if I was, I mean, whatever, we're like literally no, <laughs> nowhere near having children. But um, I think like we should be examining why we think that our husbands shouldn't see or our partners shouldn't see childbirth, which is um, one of the most natural things, uh, it, it, you know, it, <laughs> the most natural okay. principles as yeah. humans. While giving birth, Millie, so you know you push so hard that you take a shit. Do you want your husband to see you poop? No, really. I, I don't. I don't. I think a little bit of mystery is a part of attraction. I don't want to see my husband poop either. Um, but 
so I mean, going back to like before the giving birth thing, there are men who flat out say, "Oh, I'm just no longer attracted to her because she had a baby." Like well, there yeah. are men who say that. There, it's not like stress and other things. Uh, there's a specific couple that told me about like an issue, and the issue was the husband said, "Because she is now the mother of my child, I can't." see her like sexy to him is almost supposed to be dirty and naughty and maybe it comes from watching too much porn I don't know why sexy to him has to be like naughty but he's like like, because she's the mother of my child I can't see her as naughty anymore and I can't see myself doing naughty things to her because I almost see her as too angelic now I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I've heard it before, too. Like, oh, after witnessing my wife breastfeeding the child, I no longer, like, that's for feeding my child. That's not for my sexual gratification anymore. Like, the function has changed in that sense. I mean, this is, like, from, you know, a male saying this. Um, But, you know, again, like, experiences fluctuate your preference, Um, and some people can just be either traumatized by it or conditioned differently by it. Um, and I, you know, I like to look at it from an evolutionary perspective, like what is going on there? You know, is it, is selecting that behavior supporting the evolution of that species? Um, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I see going on there. Um, it could be that they're just not supposed to have like more children because he's lacking resources or something like that. There could be some kind of a sensory function at play. Sorry, my dog is like barking like crazy. I don't know if you guys can hear her. No, I you're good. Okay. Uh, no, we can hear. Maybe a little bit. Take a minute, or I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Let me close the door here. So sorry. Okay. No worries. Okay. Yeah. Oh my God. (laughs) I had something delivered and okay. Long story. Anyways. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. So um, what were we? Oh, the why men are not attracted well, some men, not yeah, all men. Some yeah, men. some men are sometimes not into the whole motherhood thing as far as remaining attracted to their partner as a sexual being as well. Um, and that could, you know, there could be a variety of reasons for that. Um, but you know, I think when more often than not, they're observing their partner, nourishing and feeding their child, that can overshadow the fewer opportunities they have to engage with that same stimuli, like breasts or whatever, as a sexual thing, right? Yeah, no, there are some fathers who become jealous of their children and the attention they get from the mother. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people like that, like with dogs. Like, they get a dog. 
and they get jealous at how their partner is paying so much attention to the dog and not them it's crazy yeah that's a different when it comes to a child it's just so wild to me because it's like you put this child in me i'm carrying it for the both of us i'm doing all the work and then when i'm done carrying it and doing all the work for nine months and i bring it into this world for us you you punish me like that's the thank you that people get like yeah it's a common thing have you ever had a couple come to you with something like that and you had to try to like change the way the father saw his wife so I've never like I said like I I don't do talk therapy or see couples and do relationship therapy I, I work with like particular individuals but I have like gotten close to some parents and consulted with them on specific behaviors and how they're supposed to respond and things like that and some things have come up along the way um but you know it all comes down to perspective taking you know um if the person doesn't have the coping skills to look outside of themselves and take the perspective of their partner put themselves in their shoes um then that's going to cause problems, you know? So there's a lot of coping skills, particular behaviors related to coping skills that can really save a relationship. And if those things are lacking, you're going to see some bumps along the way, you know? Um, uh, Well, what are some of the coping skills? I mean, this is what I was going to ask is like, were there any things you learned in your training and education that were sort of helpful in like regards to your upbringing and dealing with Persian families, overbearing parents, not that you necessarily had that, but like, you know, the kind of uh, Mm -hmm. stereotypes we face. For sure. In every aspect of everything (laughs) in my life, I have learned a tremendous amount um, about why people do things the way they do it and why our community particularly may have a lot of trauma-based situations that are running the show. Um, And, you know, it's not like transitioning in general for humans can be extremely stressful and traumatizing in itself. And, you know, a lot of Iranians in our community, they had to transition from a very suppressive government into, you know, a foreign place, a lot of them not knowing the language and systems and this and that. And so there's a lot of like trauma um, at play. And then they have to raise a child and make the world go round. And when a person is stressed out, there's a higher probability that more maladaptive behaviors are going to come into play. So, um, you know, we had to deal with, you know, some of our parents, maybe first generation or second generation or whatever, there is a significant amount of trauma at play. And, and when, when someone's transitioning, whether to a new job, a new house, uh, transitioning to some kind of a new thing, that's always going to have a certain level of anxiety and unsu- uncertainty. Familiar pain, however, when you're not transitioning, the familiar pain is more comfortable. Unfamiliar pain is way more, uh, has way more anxiety to it. Um, So, you know, I think 
when things become unfamiliar, there's going to be a lot of tendencies to either regress to old ways that are not very functional um, or, you know, you start picking up more maladaptive ways of handling things. And that's why coping skills, having these skills of coping skills, it's like kind of doing your homework before the test, you know, um, you're preparing yourself that when a stressful situation, you're learning skills that when a stressful situation or event occurs, you're able to respond and manage yourself in such a way to remain calm and be able to observe in such a way to pick up on the stimuli that you need to in that moment of time to respond functionally instead of being reactive, right? Um, so you're, you see, a, 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 you know, sometimes you see patterns. Like I know, like, I don't know if you guys heard this, but like, I don't want to be sexist either, but... I tend to notice like with Iranian culture, raising your voice seems to be like a common thing. Is it, do you guys see that? Like talking loud, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. It's like, are we just like constantly talking loud? Cause we're calling Iran and the reception's bad. And now like we're stuck yeah. in that mode. <laughs> like what is happening? Right. So like, I, I just feel like we have, we're, I don't know. I don't want to overgeneralize, but I feel like it's like a higher probability since we are exposed to opportunities to speak more loudly that we need to speak more loudly for the person to hear us since we're calling Iran or wherever. Um, but I feel like in moments of confrontation and um, arguments and stuff, like we're really trigger ready to yell. I so, definitely miss that with my dad, especially. Yeah he's so trigger ready that before I'm even arguing with him, like <laughs> I'll calmly say something yeah. and he'll respond in like an argumentative way. And I'm just like, like, why was that your automatic reaction? Like I did not attack you in any way, shape or form. I came to you in a very calm manner and like you automatically reacted yelling as if I started yelling at you first. And then when yeah. I call him out for yelling, he's like, I'm not yelling. I'm like, you're literally yelling right now. And sometimes yeah. they don't even notice it. It's just like, it's so like automatic to them. To me, it's so embedded in, in Persian culture. Uh, not, I know it sounds fucked up or whatever. But it's, it's true though. Like, honestly, it is. It's a major part of the culture. Um, and I, I think also uh sort of like violence is a form of discipline is part of the culture punishment well. yeah yeah um i i don't know <laughs> i don't know how we got now we're yeah. tackling an area so like punishment okay like in behavior analysis like okay in my field what we try to do is we focus on reinforcing the behaviors we want the alternative behaviors that functionally replace the maladaptive behaviors okay mm -hmm. um so um like a kid that you tell the you know kid okay go do your homework and he starts yelling and tantruming to escape from doing the homework the function is escape right because now he's crying and yelling and and all this time is passing he still hasn't started his homework and then the parents like okay whatever, forget it, don't do your homework. 
Um, well, guess what? Now the kid um, knows next time if he doesn't want to do something like homework in similar situations, he's going to do that so that he can escape from doing the non-preferred tasks. Um, so that goes into play with, you know, adult relationships, you know, like you'll see dynamics with parent relationships, significant others, whatever, that this person results into yelling to like escape the confrontation of whatever information you're trying to access or something, right? And then now you're like, okay, I don't want to get into this. They're going to start yelling, so I'm not going to even try, so forget it. And now they're reinforced and the probability of them yelling next time is going to increase. I feel like in Iranian culture, there's an emphasis on punishment contingencies um, sometimes where, you know, it's like, it's like nothing, you know, like even positive punishment, like there's like a well-known thing, like Persian moms sometimes like sat, they take off their sandal and throw it at their kid or whatever. And it's like a funny concept because it's so common. You know what I mean? But like someone outside of our cult- culture would look at it and be like, Oh my God, that's like crazy. I think we were all, and, and when we first experienced that, oh my God, I think it's funny because <laughs> it, was, it only became funny when we all recognized that we had the same experience. I think that's like one of the beauties of, I don't know, beauty, but it, it's yeah, part it of being a first generation American or, or, or whatever, just like, uh, you know what I mean? Together being, as one. We are all one. No. Um. <laughs> Yeah, together is one being <laughs> having dampai thrown at our face. Exactly. We're all in it together. It's um, so funny because like I never experienced that. But my mom growing up in Israel, like her father was very old fashioned Persian. And she said that like if they did something wrong, like he what was his like signature move? I think he would like smack the bottom of their feet either with like a belt or like a wooden spoon but it was always the bottom of their feet i don't know why i guess it's like a painful like sensitive place hidden where it hurts yeah i haven't heard of that one so (laughs) i (laughs) I don't know like that's interesting um but but how how do you unteach like can you give us an example of how you would unteach something like that because Another thing that we wanted to speak about mm-hmm. is like women that fall into a pattern of getting into relationships with men that they automatically see things that they need to fix in these men. Like some women, mm-hmm. like they like chase this idea of being with a man that that needs nurturing and needs to be fixed. Yeah. How would you unteach such a like problematic thing in someone's life? um well I I know that like it it differs for each person but like let's say you could just like make an example of one specific person okay so generally I feel like this is a phase that could happen in a woman's life not specifically in our culture but like all cultures where like a woman has to experience having a non-functional relationship with someone that doesn't have the resources or whatever that characteristics or whatever that they need in a partner to make it a cohesive relationship a functional relationship um, for them to experience 
something like that to see how unhappy they are constantly trying to change this person to later realize that they need to be with someone that they accept from the get-go. And I also think it's like an age thing too. Because like when you're like in your early 20s, not a lot of men in their early 20s or mid-20s or whatever have the repertoires needed. Uh, not I'm not saying all, but like a lot of them don't have the repertoires needed for like the type of relationship it takes to make things work, right? Um, and it, that comes through mistakes and discriminating and experiences. Um, but yeah, like I, I feel like um, just generally, not even just relationships, I feel like generally there's two ways to go about things. It's either you accept it um, and that creates a more functional situation or you resist it. Um, and when you're going into something, resisting how something is and needing to change it, that's always going to create bumps in the road because now you have a set of expectations. And if this thing doesn't turn out in that way, you're going to be disappointed. And a hundred percent of the time, it's not going to turn out that way. And maybe your expectations are not all that functional for what's to come. Right. So, um, I think this is kind of getting into acceptance and commitment therapy, um, which is pretty much learning to observe your thoughts and diffusing from them and accepting them. Uh, it could be thoughts about your significant other, thoughts about something, thoughts about an experience, an event, whatever that may be, is you observe the, the thought, the perception, the bias, whatever you have, and you see it for what it is, that it's an observation, it's a thought, it's, it doesn't necessarily mean it's 100 percent true and you experience it and you let it pass and you diffuse from it instead of attaching to it um, when we have rule governed behavior meaning uh, we have like these rules we set for ourselves right and our behavior is modified not through the contingencies that are immediately changing our perception and influence and needs but more so consequences that are delayed or later in the future based on this rule so when you have these rule governed behavior like oh all men should have this type of salary or all men should be from this region of you know the neighborhood or iran or whatever uh, what that's going to do is it's going to bring you into resistance for what is and sometimes our rule governed thoughts and behaviors are extremely limited and they stop you from experiencing a vast array of experiences that can be actually quite functional and needed for your particular repertoire at that moment in time. Does that kind of explain it? Like, is that too confusing? I really hate everything you just said because I feel like it's everything my friends tell me is wrong with me. <laughs> and I never want to admit it. And then when someone who's actually studied this as a science says that, I'm just like, wow, maybe they're right. Um, no, but everything you said, I feel like is so relatable Good, to so yeah. many people, especially in the Persian community. Um, you actually like touched, like by answering my first question, you kind of touched on another topic that we want to discuss, which is an obsession in the Persian community with 
only being with a certain type of person from a certain city. Oh, Even yeah. now, um, it's so weird to me that people back in Iran were like this because when I speak to my family, let's say part of my family is Kwashi, when mm-hmm. I ask them where they were born and where they grew up, everyone apparently was born and raised in Tehran. Mm-hmm. But their great great grandfather was from Kashan, so they're all Kashi. So I'm like, mm-hmm. not only did you not, you were not born in Kashan, you did not grow up in Kashan, you, it's like your grandfather that's from there, but you're still gonna only try to marry someone else from Kashan who also isn't from Kashan. Like, it just, it yeah. made no sense to me because so many of them weren't even born in these cities, but they considered themselves Kashi because their great grandfather was from there. And then somehow that also carried on into Americans, into American Persians. A lot of them are still like, oh, like, my family's Kashi and, like, I'm not going to date someone who's Esfani. Right. This is still carried on. And, like, what you were saying was so true that I think sometimes people shut down a certain type of person that could be good for them because they have this certain stigma or, like, mindset in their head that they should only be with a specific person. Right. And I and I get why, I mean, I get why people get in their rule-governed ways. Um, like, for instance, like with Iran, like, or even in the U.S., someone from Texas is going to have like a specific accent or latcha that we might not be attracted to or certain tendencies and habits that they're into that we don't see as to be very healthy or functional or whatever, there's like a higher probability of those kinds of occurrences in those particular regions. So like I get to some extent, like why? Because it's like a more safer bet, but at the same time, it's not, um, it could just be possible that this person could be actually amazing, you know, and so good for you. And very attractive to you, you know? Um, So there's also that. A a lot of suffering, I feel like, in human behavior, and actually this is an acceptance and commitment therapy view as well, is a lot of suffering and anxieties and and situations and limitations come from rule-governed behavior. But at the same time, the duality is also true, that sometimes rule-governed behaviors prevent you from a shitload of stress, you know? Like... A rule-governed behavior could be put on your seatbelt, you know, because if you get in an accident, it's going to protect you, right? I mean, yeah, you put on your seatbelt now and you don't see the consequence right away. It's delayed. It's later until, God forbid, you get into an accident or whatever. But, um, well, nowadays, it, the car beeps, so there's a consequence there. If you don't want the car to beep, you have to put on your seatbelt. But Yeah, I mean, I see yeah, how, like, like they're... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, it's just um, that's so true that it, it is because it's it's this desire for comfort, and it relates back to what you were saying of this instability. Um, Persians, Iranians, whatever face when when they had to leave their own country, there is this just perpetual instability and chaos that's present in their lives. So that's why exactly. yeah, they establish these kinds of rules that leaves them you know, coming off as very close-minded that, oh, you know, only date people within that make this like certain income and only date people whose families like this and uh, is from this part of Iran and stuff like that. Um, 
but it's it's yeah it's not necessarily helpful it, it doesn't uh, necessarily promise safety yeah exactly and and transitioning is very uncertain especially from country to country it could be very traumatizing um you know going to a country let's say you get married to someone and you don't fully know them like in iran it's common like you're not dating for years before you get married maybe you guys knew each other for like a couple months you don't fully know that person you got married and now they want to come to america you have to come with them and their family and you don't know anyone and then now you find out their family is toxic and this and i it could be a whole lot of trauma involved you know um so people with higher levels of anxiety are tend to engage in more rule governed behaviors and and actually that's how ocd happens right there's this rule you have to flip the switch a couple of times before you can enter the room or whatever you know um so there 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 is a balance there's a middle ground i think a certain level of rule governed behavior is healthy and a certain level of flexibility is healthy um but it's always nice to like remind yourself getting into a relationship looking for that perfect partner making sense of your parents making sense of your friends or whatever that they're constantly doing this juggling act of flexibility and rule governance and they're basing you know a lot of their thoughts and resisting a lot of their thoughts based on these two principles you know it's so crazy just from what you said right now it made me realize it kind of made me understand those type of people better that only try to go for someone from their own city cuz like mm-hmm. i don't know you kind of made it make sense for me cuz i remember i don't use jswipe anymore because it became kind of lame um uh but when i used to use jswipe i remember there was like an 80% higher chance that I would match with someone. JSwipe would show you if you had mutual friends on Facebook because the app was connected through Facebook. Mm-hmm. That's how you would like sign up for it. Yeah. And there was like probably like an 80% higher chance that I would match with someone if we had mutual friends on Facebook. Cause it's almost this kind of comfort that like, you know, someone who knows that person, they can, like tell you if that person is normal if that person's similar to you like like I guess it kind of makes sense that people would want to be with people from like the same city as them and know the same people as them and culturally are similar to them yeah it's it's a safer bet and also it's like oh if these people approve of you as an acquaintance or as a friend you must have some qualities that I can relate to you know yeah, that that really makes sense I don't like I really used to judge that so much, but now I see that it's something that I kind of do in my own way. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the same time though, I mean, like there's I mean, I don't want to say there's all Yeah, there's always a duality to something, right? There's a good side and a bad side to it. Now, if you're using JSwipe and you're matching with someone that knows like a lot of people that you know, the good thing is that, yeah, it's a safer bet. This person is more likely, higher probability that they have characteristics that you're compatible with, um, that your friends like, you know, you just mesh better. But then there's also that duality, like what if things don't work out though? And then he starts like talking to the people that you know about certain things about you, right? 
there's also that there's also like what if you are the type that ghosts people and you ghost this person and now he's kind of messing with your reputation in that circle yeah me and millie were just talking about the fact that a lot of persian girls find comfort in when they're younger and they're not looking for marriage yet find comfort in only dating guys outside the community and only dating non-Persian guys because then they know that they can have sex with the person and do this and do that and Mm -hmm. like let go of all of their inhibitions and like just do whatever they feel like doing and nobody's gonna find out because they this non-Persian guy doesn't know anyone in the community doesn't know any of your relatives doesn't know your friends um well speaking of you know patterns and uh I think a lot of Persian girls have a hard time uh, being intimate with their uh, husbands if they get to their Persian husbands because they only know how to let go of themselves with someone who isn't from their own background because they associate their own background and their culture with judgment and all of these things. So um, I think that's a, a very big issue. Yeah, for but sure. And that could also be that when it's an entire community that's problematic. Yeah, that could definitely be at play. Um, the fear of what happens if this gets out and then I meet my husband and then he finds out that I was with this person and now I'm not this pure angel he sees me as or whatever. Um, but you know, it's also like, I feel like it's not just Persian women. I feel like a lot of women um, can have the issue with getting intimate after, you know, a series of relationships as well. Because when you get like hurt, right, you now build up walls. Now your reinforcement history and repertoire has changed in such a way where you're less likely to, um, be vulnerable because it takes a certain level of vulnerability right so there's also that um so you have to like look at all kinds of we can't just say oh it's because this there i'm sure there's like other variables at play too how many relationships has this person had experience with was she ever in love did she have a heartbreak um you know is this particular person in her community circle you know what's what's that cost what's at play so there's all that too into the total analysis if you can even do a total analysis uh, that kind of shows you a trend and probability of how things are likely to turn out and what the consequences may be later and then you do your rule governed behavior you know and and make new rules and you're constantly modifying your rules um but yeah, you know, I guess when you said what's the difference with like men and women, I think like if we're going to get like super complex about it, I feel like women are more cautious when it comes to engaging in intimate relationships. I don't know. What do you guys think? Uh, I, I don't think I agree with that. I don't know. For me, I, I especially when it comes to gender, I, I really don't think I don't I I stay away from generalizations, but yeah, in the relationship aspect, you know, there's other like things like biology that we can't deny, but in terms of like intimacy, I think that's something that needs to be looked at on an individual basis. But, but Millie, yeah. can, you, can you agree that recently, I don't know if you've seen this as a pattern, but I feel like I have that girls 
won't do relationshipy type of things with a guy unless they want it to turn into a relationship. But guys will be less cautious and guys will bring you around their friends and introduce you to all of them and then bring you to family dinners and go on dates with you and sleep with you, whatever. And then they'll be like, wait, we're not in a relationship. Why did you think this was a relationship? Like, we're just friends. We're just hooking up. Yeah, but like, how cautious was she that she was engaged? How could she have been that cautious if she was engaging with all of that? That's what I'm saying. She thought it was a Girls won't do that to a guy unless they want it to be a relationship because they're cautious. Guys will treat a girl that they don't actually want a relationship with like a relationship because they're not cautious. That's how I see it. I think there's two different types of cautiousness then, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, you know, that, I agree. Like, it's really hard to overgeneralize like that and say, oh, this is because they're women or men or whatever. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I wouldn't do it either, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. I mean, there's a lot of women that are very masculine and there's a lot of men that are very feminine, you know? So we can't not necessarily just say men and women. Uh, but yeah, like, I, I also understand, like, what you're saying that men are more easily able to put their guards down um initiate going into a relationship initially right um than women are and i could kind of see that too because it could be like a biological thing happening where like i don't think those things necessitate a guard being put down for them those are just things that are not as personal or intimate to them but for women those are things that are particularly sensitive to them i don't think it's a big deal for men like they their guards are still up it's it's just it operates in different ways to me yeah i could see that but like also you have to look at what's the function of the behavior too or the set of behaviors right so like is the woman trying to get access to more intimacy and sex or is the man again we can't say if it's a woman or man thing but biologically i think men are a little bit more driven to sleep with their partner from the get-go than women are or at least higher probability right Mm -hmm. yeah because that's how evolution happens. I mean, that's how that's how it goes down, right? I mean, we wouldn't exist here if it was like women, if men didn't want to sleep with more women more often than women do, right? So I think in that sense, that can come into play from like a selectionism viewpoint. I mean, um, I think that, I think a lot of the things women do in general are a reaction to what men do like girls know that men generally are trying to have sex so after a date if a girl is interested in the guy she won't sleep with him to keep his interest because if she Mm -hmm. sleeps with him right away then he just got what he wanted then he's not trying to get to know her or learn about her but if a girl is like, ah, I'm attracted to him, but I'm not actually into him, I think she's more likely to sleep with a guy on a first or second date because she doesn't care to try to, like, reel him in and try to get to know each other. That's true, too. Yeah. So a lot of the I choices girls make aren't, like, based on whether or not they want – I'm sure girls want to have sex just as much as guys. Girls like pleasure. But, like, 
the decisions girls make not to sleep with someone on a first date isn't because they're not horny or isn't because they're not attracted or they don't want sex just as much as a guy does. It's because they're trying to like outsmart the guy constantly and they're trying to like trick the guy or whatever. Uh, Yeah, I mean, they're trying to ensure that this person gets the opportunity to get to know them and like them for who they are and want to be around them, not just for sex. And then when the sex does happen, once they're satiated, they're not going to disappear because now they're satiated, but they're actually going to want to hit them up later and be like, hey, I miss having you around, you know, Um, conditioning them. I wouldn't say like tricking them (laughs) Um, (laughs) but um, I get it like yeah totally it's a smart move Um, but yeah you want to provide the opportunity to condition the person to get used to you a little bit and also I don't know about you guys but I feel like when you get to know the guy a little bit they become oh no I don't want to say that Um, what were you gonna say yeah, like, if you like someone, right, like, you kind of can see yourself with them and having a relationship with them, another part of you wants to wait on it, because you kind of want to experience, like, a nicer connection when the sex does happen, right? Because I think, like, for women, it, like, a lot more, like, hormones and emotions and stuff come into play, like, oxytocin. I don't know if you guys yeah. know that. Yeah. Um, And so it's nicer to get vulnerable on different levels, not just sex, before you get into the sex. Because I feel like... I agree with that, but it's almost a catch-22 with me because on the one hand, I feel like the best sex I've ever had is sex where there was emotions involved. Yeah. But on the other hand, I'm sometimes I'm always scared. I always have this, like, fear in the back of my head that I'm going to fall for a guy and then sleep with him and then the sex is gonna be really bad and then I'm gonna be stuck in this like limbo of like oh my god I like him so much but like oh my god it's so horrible like what do I do so it's like almost like you don't want to wait too long but like long enough that like the sex is better because of the feelings you have for each other yeah there's that duality there again for sure well, I, I think falling in love with someone, which of course is a, is a state, uh, but like not a long-term thing, like loving someone is different, but like getting to that point where you fall for someone, it requires a combination of things and like a combi- like multiple connections, like what Sally was saying. So yeah, there is the initial connection where maybe it's um, intellectual and like the second connection is emotional um, I don't think you're going to fully fall for that person if the third connection, which is physical, doesn't happen. So I think unless you're mm-hmm. like Charlotte in Sex and the City and like now oh you're literally God. at the altar and you're like, yeah, he can't get it. Like, that's obviously a different <laughs> story. Like, just well, that's don't- desperation. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah, try- we support premarital sex. Um- <laughs> Wait, what's my new favorite quote? You can't have premarital sex if you just never get married. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Yes. Totally. Um. <laughs> um, yeah, no. And it's like, it, you know, a lot of, like, yeah, a lot of variables come into play. There's the oxytocin. There's the reinforcement. History. But also, I hear guys, like, you know, guys from, I, I heard from, like, some guy friends that, like, they'll just lose interest if, 
you know, sex is not on the table after, you know, like a month. Um, because they've had experiences where like, you know, you said like, they'll wait that long and then they'll have sex and it's complete crap, you know? And it's very awkward. Well, not necessarily that it's crap, but it's just not compatible. Like, like I know some guys don't like to be choked and they get like freaked out. It's like, like, I don't know how we got here. We're going there. (laughs) I, I feel like it's been a while since I've been this open and shared this much with our listeners. Like, I feel like in the beginning of the podcast, I was more open to sharing. Um, we were also anonymous. And I feel like I just, like, told you guys more. But I, I think that they deserve honesty and truth. And I, yeah. I think that's what they want to hear. And they, they don't want sugar-coated things. So this is the truth. You know, some guys, I'll go to choke them. And they get freaked out. And they're like, don't do that. And I'm just like... It's incompatibility. And no matter how great I think their personality is, I think in a way it's I just know it's not gonna work because it's a it's a turnoff. It's you want someone who's compatible with you. It's not even good or bad at sex, it's more compatible or not compatible. But also like compatibility can be learned as well. So initially the sex could be shit and then you learn each other's My, bodies and discriminate. Like to teach. Which is a, such a great thing, and I envy my exactly. teaching. I have zero patience. I do not want to teach anyone anything. I want you to already be the person I want you to be, which is so horrible. And maybe the reason why I'm still single at 25. Um, but there's nothing I, wrong I, with being still single at 25. Well, yeah, well, single for 25 years maybe is how I should okay. put it. You've never been in a relationship? No. Okay. Do you want to dissect me and try to understand what's wrong with me? No, there's nothing wrong with you. It's a blessing (laughs) in disguise as well because you're not, you know, exposed to all those relationship traumas that could make you so fearful of, you know, being... I agree because I think it also made me a more independent person. For sure. Um, And I, I get that a lot from guys. A lot of guys are intimidated by it, though. Because it's almost too much independence to the, the point where, like, a lot of guys want a girl that's a little needy, no matter how much they say they don't. Yeah, because it shows interest. It shows, like, oh, you know, we have a connection. She wants me. She likes me. There's something there. Yeah. There's um, a but balance. I, as you yeah. were saying, some people do like to teach. And sometimes compatibility, in that sense, I guess, can be taught. Yeah, yeah, it can be. I mean, let's, okay, I'm not getting into like personal stuff, but I know of situations where the sex initially is, um, from what I hear, like crap, and then it turns into the best sex they've ever had in their life. And not that they intentionally try to teach the person, but it just learning happens, whether you like it or not. You know, you just get to know the person. You start discriminating what's reinforcing for them and what's not reinforcing for them. And then that reinforces your behavior to do that thing that's more reinforcing for them more often. And bada bing, bada boom, you know what's up. Um, So you, you know, you could be great at sex with one person and really shitty at it with someone else. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean you're the sex god that just generalizes having amazing sex with all kinds of people. Um... So yeah, you know, it, it's on an individual level again. I feel like I don't know, but you I know. think so. I remember something like I don't know what when my friend told me this at the time. It like 
was such a uh like i had such an epiphany um but she was saying she had uh reached somehow she was friends with her ex's ex-girlfriend and the subject came up of like how passionate they were like I don't know. I'm trying to think like, did she actually tell the ex-girlfriend? Yeah, we had amazing sex, but I guess that happened. And the girlfriend, the ex-girlfriend of the, my friend's ex was like, wow, you thought so? I thought he was like the worst lay of my life. But meanwhile, for my friend, this ex of hers was like a sex god. So I think it's so it's, it's yeah, it's like, it's, it's, it is about individuality and it's everyone, you know what I mean? It depends on the person and right. Totally. Connection. That's such an interesting situation to be in. I don't think I've ever heard of such a thing. Yeah, I I feel like I didn't ask enough questions about how that situation came to be. Oh my god, I would have asked all the questions. Like, where two exes of one guy become friends and then trade sex stories about the same guy? I think that's wild. Yeah, Yeah. well, this is in Berlin. I guess they're (laughs) more uh, bohemian. Oh yeah, Berlin. Poor guy. <laughs> I mean, not poor guy. One of them called him a sex god, at least. The other yeah. one said he was the worst lay, but at least one of them was like satisfied. I love how all of our, like the ends of all of our podcasts always ends somehow with like a sexual conversation. Like, what does it say about us and what what we need? <laughs> Whatever, we're humans, and whether they like to admit it or not, these are common thoughts that happen throughout the day for everyone. So. We're just more open about it at the moment. All good. But um, yeah, so yeah, you know, it could be on an individual level. What were we talking about? (laughs) Yeah, before we started talking about sex. (laughs) Well, I think like the last thing you were saying was just about unteaching certain behaviors uh, and like how what that process looks like. Um, right so like there's something that we call in our field discrimination training and I think this is like really useful uh, to know and like how humans tend to learn this is one of the main ways in which um, you learn to discriminate through experiencing what's functional what's not functional what works what doesn't so you know how they say uh, there's no such thing as mistakes that's really true on a scientific level. Like you have to have those opportunities and trials where you engage in a certain behavior in a certain way to experience that consequence, to see that it really doesn't work. It's not functional for you. It doesn't yield any like fruits um, to your labor so that you modify your behavior and don't do it in that way anymore and change. I mean, that's how change happens. You have to make mistakes. You have to engage in discriminating what once worked in a way you did it doesn't work for this changing circumstance. And so that's why, you know, repertoires and on an individual level, it's important not to engage in rule governed behaviors because when you're engaging in rule governed behaviors, the stimuli fluctuate in your environment in such a way where um, what was functional before and how you did it doesn't necessarily apply in that way of the rule that you've set for yourself to today's situation in today's environment. And it's not going to yield the same kind of fruitful results as you expected based on that rule. Uh, So yeah, 
um I don't know I kind of got in the zone there for a second but no no I was yeah. listening and yeah so yeah you know that's why it's important not to uh be rigid and engaging in so many rule governed behaviors um and allowing the flexibility to experience mistakes don't be scared of mistakes don't have anxiety of mistakes allow those opportunities to uh happen so that you can allow yourself to modify and change in such ways that's going to take you to the next level i really like that way of viewing it yeah i feel like i haven't just wasted a bunch of time and fucked up (laughs) for sure i just know what works for me yeah but um natalie was there anything you wanted to add um nothing I really want to add I just kind of want to thank you because I feel like (laughs) I don't know I feel like each person we bring on here teaches me something about myself because I can be so stubborn when my own friends try to show me what I'm doing wrong but then when an outside third party who doesn't really know me personally comes on and isn't even talking about me but somehow manages to say something that I know I'm doing in my life wrong. Like, I don't know. It's just like a revelation every time. It's like a new epiphany on every episode. Um, That's so awesome. Yeah. And thank you for allowing me to come out here and broadcast my perspective to our particular community and giving me the opportunity. Um, I think what you guys are doing is amazing. I, I see big things happening. It's definitely something we need. And just the level of honesty and truth and um, realness that, you know, I hear from listening to your podcast, I really, really enjoy. I'm just so happy that I was able to come on here and collaborate with you guys. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to hear what our listeners think of. Oh, my God. I'm scared. (laughs) No, no, it's really interesting. And I like we're glad we got to be part of this and learn more about. uh, Awesome analysis but uh well i guess we'll end it here um and shab bechir or so bechir to our listeners whenever whenever you're listening to this yeah whatever whatever time you're listening all right all righty thank you bye thank you bye bye